Welcome back to another episode of the Hello Blink Show. We're bringing Mark Tyson back on the show for a second round of interviews this time. The reason is I came across a few contracts um, in my limited experience doing contracting work, and there's some clauses in there that keep coming up again and again that really make me concerned, specifically assignment of inventions and trying to list out prior inventions and who owns these things while you're working for or with this company. We wanted to bring Mark back on to give us some advice about what we should look for, but a word of warning, this is not official legal res- this is not official legal advice. This is really a discussion about what kind of red flags you should look for, how you might negotiate these, and really when you should reach out to your counselor to get that type of legal advice. Let's jump in. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us and discuss contracts with us. It's great to be back, guys. This is one of my favorite subjects, so looking forward to it. (laughs) Oh, excellent. We've got a few on here. As I mentioned in the intro, this has come up a few times um, for me, and it's one of those things where it's like, do these make sense? There's a couple of clauses in contracts that I see come up and up over and over again that I am worried about am i going to get screwed is the company just doing a land grab right are they just trying to grab as much ip and it's like oh we're going to hire this engineer and we're going to like take all their inventions or is it really like trying to protect that separation between myself as a contractor what i might be working on and the company's ip so i get there needs to be boundaries there but some of the wording really makes me worried um and i want to jump into that we have a few example clauses we want to go go through. So let's start with this invention assignment clause. And I think this is one that a lot of employers, when they're signing on with a company, especially engineers and programmers, will run across. This one's fairly common. And I'm not going to read the sample clauses here. These are clauses that have been taken from real contracts. I have redacted the names and we're going to put them in the show notes so people can read them and get an idea. Once again, don't take this for legal advice. So I'm going to I'm going to give an overview of this one. This is the assignment of inventions. Basically, anything that is researched or invented while you're working with or for, say, your client, then belongs to the client. Sometimes I see stipulations that are like, oh, if it's on company time or if it's with company equipment or facilities, the company, your client, then claims ownership of that or your employer. Um, does this clearly define activities that could be a conflict of interest and the company can claim ownership of it? Like, where does that boundary happen that you've seen, Mark? Yeah, so the boundary, I think the lines are drawn, at least in a handful of states. Um, I think there are around 10 of them that have statutory protections for employees. And I think that this contract was likely taken from one of those states, Washington, where I practice is one of those states, California, Delaware, a few others. Um, And they have these statutory provisions that restrict what employers can (laughs) grab as far as as work product and things that their employees make. Uh, And so some of the language that you see in this particular provision relating to using company equipment, supplies, facilities, or proprietary information 
Um, you'll often see that kind of language in these statutes. Um, and then also, are you doing it on company time? Uh, do the inventions relate to the business of the company or um, areas of research or development that the company could go down? And so what most employers will do, particularly in those states that have those statutes, is insert assignment um, um, assignment clauses, invention assignment clauses that essentially track with the statute. And it makes sense why they would. Um, it gives them the broadest um, the broadest reach as far as capturing IP and inventions that their employees create. Um, and so I don't know that it's necessarily accurate to say that it's uh, these things are always clear, um, at least from an employee's perspective, um, as to, to you know what they create, what the company is going to own. And in fact, I get plenty of calls from from prospective employees who get employment agreements like this and are asking me just that, you know, where are the lines drawn? And it usually comes down to, to fact specific um, inquiries, you know, so we have to actually go and dig into, you know, what's your side hustle that you have that you want to make sure that the company isn't going to, to end up with ownership rights. And I know that's not the most satisfying answer, but I think it is reflective of the reality that most employees face. And so I actually think this is an opportunity to say, you know, there are some things that you can DIY from a legal perspective. And I know we talked about this the last time you guys had me on, uh, but there are some things that there's actually benefit to actually connecting with a lawyer and walking through these things and saying, okay, here are the areas where, you know, you could be jeopardizing your side hustle um, or, or maybe you're in the clear. But in any event, you know, talking through some strategies that you can deploy as an employee um, to try to mitigate any risk that you would have that the company would have rights to things you're doing on the side. So some classic examples include, you know, don't use company equipment. Uh, don't, don't between the hours of nine and five, if that's, if those are your general work hours during the week, um, you know, don't be working on these projects. Certainly don't incorporate, uh, you know, confidential information that you get access to from the employer uh, into whatever it is that you're building. Yeah, I've known a few people um, that have gotten into trouble with that, whether they used company equipment or, or did it on company time and then tried to sell it. And then it was suddenly a legal battle with the company. Um, I've seen situations where this clause was not in the contract and, it's, and it became even messier. So I think having this clause in there can help delineate where those boundaries are. Um, that being said, I've I also know somebody who worked for a company and I've seen this as well. The the language is basically while you're under contract with us or an employee, anything you make is ours, which means in my understanding that if you make it on your off time on your own equipment, the company still can lay claim to it. Now, is that dependent on the statute of the of the state? What can determine that? And do you have any protections or is it like, hey, I'm signing away anything so I can make good money from this company? Like that's a decision you have to make. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in one of these states that has these restrictive statutes, if the company has something that essentially says, hey, we own anything that you create um, while you're working for us, there would be circumstances where those wouldn't be considered enforceable. Um, then again, if the company has, uh, you know, millions of dollars in the bank and you have um, very little money in the bank to, to fight them, you know, they may end up running out the clock on you if there was a dispute over IP. So there can be some um, some practical difficulties even then trying to enforce your rights. But yeah, if you're in a state that doesn't have a statute that specifically uh, protects employees 
against these broad overreaching assignment clauses, your best protection is going to be um, negotiating your contract before you enter into it. Um, and, you know, if you're someone who doesn't have a side hustle or doesn't have plans to, to create a side hustle project while you're an employee, maybe this isn't the hill that you die on. But if you are building something on the side, or even if you have, say, a podcast or a blog or anything that you that that you're trying to develop on the side, um, taking a little bit of time before you sign the offer um, to at least get clarity from the company on um, on the terms in the contract if you don't understand them, or if you understand them all too well and and just disagree with them, uh, being willing to push back and say. Hey, let's get a carve out. Um, and maybe it, maybe it looks like, you know, a prior inventions clause, which I know we're going to talk about, um, during this episode. Maybe there's a specific carve out where you can say, you know, this is essentially mine and the company is not going to, to lay any claim to it. So I recently had a conversation with a friend who, uh, they didn't sign any formal contracts in this area. They didn't have, it was a smaller company. Um, and basically the company ended up asking for all the files for a project that she'd been working on and then sort of took it and then actually let her go. Um, unfortunately I didn't think she really had much of a claim here, but the question I have is, um, if you don't have formal employment paperwork like that, it's a smaller business, it's a startup, does it make sense to try to carve that out up front and, and make a clear line? Or is the presumption that if you do something outside of work, it's yours? And would it be weird to say, hey, you know, I, we don't really have a lot of formal paperwork here, but I just want to like have us sign a little contract that states explicitly if I do anything outside of work, you know, you know, preemptively, I'm just thinking, because I feel like a lot of times the problem that people get into is that it's already done. What's done is done. Whatever they signed before, they can't go back and change it. But if they think about it ahead of time, with this invention assignment clause, is that is that a thing that people do? I, it seems it seems like it'd be weird to me. I, I would encourage people to to be upfront with the employer, and if they say, "Hey, we don't really use employment agreements," um, consider pressing them on that and and asking them to. In this instance, I mean, as an initial matter, employers should be using these things, even if they're as simple as like a one or two page offer letter with like a really simple. IP ownership provision. I mean, you can find these things on the internet. They may not be great. They may get, get you into trouble if you find the wrong ones, but it shouldn't be that hard for employers. Then again, having worked with plenty of employers who don't have these things, I understand that uh, it is a reality for a lot of smaller early stage companies. And so, you know, Harris, Harris to your question, uh, the default rule, especially with, um, say, copyrights, is if you're an employee and you create something within the scope of your employment, it's going to be owned by the company, even if there's not an explicit um, IP assignment clause. But it is key that it's within the scope. Um, so if you know you're going to be doing something, let's say you're you know, writing code on the side uh, for whatever project, whatever passion project you have, uh, and you think, hey, I may be, you know, this may be copyrightable, um, uh, copyrightable stuff that I'm creating, but it has really nothing to do with the work I'm doing for the company. And it doesn't even make sense to raise it. You know, they're going to laugh me out of the room at this little startup that I'm joining. <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, can I get a formal employment agreement? You know, use your best judgment, but be aware that default rules, while they may 
um, end up working in your favor in a, in a strictly technical sense, there can be practical realities that make relying on the default rules um, unrealistic for some people. And, uh, you know, most, especially most uh, employees, freelancers, folks like that, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast, you don't have a legal budget, you don't have a litigation budget. And so if you end up in a disputed, um, a disputed uh, case over IP, you know, you're not going to last very long unless you, you know, have some trust fund that that's sitting around just waiting to, to be tapped into. So what are some red flags people should look for in the language of these? Um, it sounds like one of them is there's no contract at all. Like that would be a red flag because you need to protect yourself too. So what else should I be watching for when I know that it's either a bad deal, they're trying to screw me or, hey, I should, you know, get some legal help to make sure I'm being protected? It's definitely a red flag if there's not a contract, but it doesn't mean that there's something nefarious going there. You know, there are innocent explanations for that too, particularly for young companies. If it's a mature company and they're not giving you an employment agreement, that's probably more of a red flag. Um, then again, most mature companies understand that uh, if they don't use employment agreements, they're actually creating more risk for themselves um, for, for claims by employee, later claims unrelated probably to IP for employees. So you're going to see them in most instances. What I would say is that uh, just look for overreach. Um, if there is a provision that seems like it's incredibly broad, um, it may not, again, be ill-intentioned. The company may not be trying to uh, gobble up everything that, that you've created or, or could create, um, but it could be an innocent thing that turns into something that, that works against you. If you develop something on the side and the company decides to, to try to... Um, to try to claim ownership to it. I will just say, and I think uh, this is something that's worth keeping in mind um, as we talk through all these things, I rarely encounter um, really bad behavior or bad intentions by companies in this space, believe it or not. I think as a freelancer, as an employee, it can feel like um, the company has it out for you. Um, but oftentimes these companies are just scared that they won't be able to deliver on their obligations to say clients, right? Because if they're creating things for their own clients and they have obligations under say an MSA uh, to, to certain deliverables to, to deliver ownership and IP, they have to ensure that their contractors, that their employees, um, anything that those folks create are going to be owned by the company so that the company can then satisfy uh, its obligation. And so my experience is that it's usually everyone is just kind of scared uh, and rightfully so. But I think when you understand that, it allows you to come to the negotiating table less from a position of, um, you know, the company has it out for me and I have to be really tough on this and instead try to work with them to understand how, uh, you know, both of your needs can be met. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So over overly broad might be like, hey, anything you create while an employee or under contract, um, that might be a red flag, but it also might be a business decision, right? Like you said, if you don't plan to work on anything in this side and they're going to pay you lots of money, eh, okay, you can own everything. Um, so it, it comes down to that. And and I guess everything is also negotiable. You can always go back and they, and they might say no, and you still have to make that decision. So yeah, I guess keep that in mind. Absolutely. I think, I think you raise a good point too, which is that it is a negotiation. And if they say no, that may just create an additional point of leverage for you to negotiate compensation. For instance, if you're, I mean, regardless of whether you're an employee or a contractor, if you have something uh, on the side or something that you want to develop on the side, they're effectively saying, 
we're not going to let you do that without uh, claiming rights to it. Uh, what they're doing is asking you to give up something valuable. It may not be financially valuable at this point, although it could be in the future, uh, but it may be personally valuable to you. And so if that's the case, that is a point of leverage for you to push back and say, okay, that's okay, uh, but we need to talk about maybe upping my salary or my benefits or uh, you know stock options or whatever the case may be. That's a great point. So thank you, Mark. I'd like to get into prior inventions, but first, let's get in a word from our sponsor. Harris, our sponsor today is CyberCity Circuits. Can you tell us a little bit about them? CyberCity Circuits is a contract manufacturer and electronics distributor. They're based in Augusta, Georgia, and we actually had David and Chris on the show in episode 20. They told us all about the business and how they are growing their business. Yeah, it's really fascinating to hear from these guys. Not only do they run an electronics kitting and distribution shop. They're also getting into contract manufacturing, as you said. So if you've got smaller projects or things you want to have produced or assembled, reach out to these guys. Head over to cybercitycircuits.com. Use the coupon code HelloBlinkShow to get 10% off of your electronics order or mention that you heard about them from this show and they'll take 25% off up They'll take 25% off of the cost of manufacturing for you if you use them for a contract manufacturer and assemble your board. All right. Prior inventions, Mark. This is something that I find personally extremely confusing. It makes sense to me if you use company time and equipment to build something, they can you know, potentially have ownership of it. But then we get to this point that says, hey, in the contract, we want you to list out everything you've invented before and then I usually see something that's like, we won't have ownership of it because you've claimed it. And sometimes I see we get unlicensed use of it, which is weird to me. And I don't quite understand that. But also, let's start with the idea of what is a prior invention? Because I see everything from like, okay, you have a patent. Well, duh. But they've also listed out like, oh, ideas and thoughts and copyrighted information. And, you know, like it seems to be anything under the sun. Like if I if I thought about tweeting something, they're like, oh, that's an invention. So like where does this line of what an invention is? Let's start with that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, defining what invention means and usually the contract will define it. And so it um, in that sense, it's there's limited value, I think, in the abstract of trying to parse it too closely. But I do think there's value in talking about what the purpose of the definition, uh, you know, is in these contracts. And um, it is often broad, like the example that you provided, you know, ideas, processes, documentation, those sorts of things. And it's deliberately broad uh, by the company. They want to make sure that, uh, you know, they're potentially capturing anything that you've created, especially in the example that you use where they want, you know, unlicensed use, which to me is kind of crazy. That seems like an outlier. I, be I believe that it happens, but I don't often see it. Um, so I've seen it twice. Yeah. I mean, if you're like Sean and you're seeing seeing this listener, um, run for the hills or at least, you know, run to a lawyer's office and, and, and try to figure out why they're asking for those rights. There may be legitimate business reasons um, that, that probably relate to the specific um, prior invention. Um, but if there's not, and if they can't justify it, I would, my response as a lawyer representing a client would be that's not commercially reasonable. And I think most companies would agree with that. Um, as far as, um, 
you know, as far as, as moving from definition to to the issue of, of listing out prior inventions um, in these types of contracts, it's kind of a dicey game in my view. Um, and part of the reason for that is usually what employers are trying to do or, or companies that they're hiring you as a contractor is take this snapshot in time where you say, this is everything that I've done. Um, and so you don't have rights to it. But the implication from that is anything that's not on that list, the company may then have rights to, or, or there may even be a, an assumption that the company does have rights to it. And so if you are not thorough and comprehensive and diligent in listing out those prior inventions, which again, if it, there's a definitional issue and you're like, well, I don't, you know, I had this thought in my head when I woke up this morning, do I have to list that out? Uh, if you overlook something and it becomes valuable uh, at some point down the road, the company lays claim to it and it's not on that list, um, you may have have shot yourself in the foot there. So my my feeling is actually in many instances that um, the enumeration of prior inventions approach in these types of contracts is actually often favorable to the company. And so one of the recommendations that I'll make, and it depends on the circumstances, of course, uh, is to actually fight fire with fire and take the company's approach of using a more general um, description of or, or definition of, of what rights are yours. Um, and, and this is often referred to as pre-existing materials or background technology is another phrase that you'll see. And the idea is there's a clause that says, you know, there's first there's the invention assignment clause that the company has saying, you know, everything that you create for us within the scope. Um, and related to our work is owned by us. But then you transition into a clause that essentially says everything that I, contractor, employee, typically a contractor in this setting, um, have created prior to working for the company that's not related to what the company is doing is mine. Um, I also encourage people to say not just things you've created prior, but things you create separately during the period of the the, um, the contract that don't relate to the company, because presumably you have other clients. Many freelancers do. So you want to make sure that you're not compromising uh, ownership rights for, for work product you're creating for other clients. But you define those things and you say, these are mine. I own these things. You don't have any claim to them. But then usually what companies will require, and this, I'll, I'll end with this point on the background technology, they'll require you to uh, grant a limited use license to them. Um, if you incorporate any of that pre-existing or background technology into deliverables that you create. So like an example of this is, let's say you're a software developer and somebody hires you to you know, develop a mobile app or something like that for them. And let's say you have like some generic code that you use whenever you develop a, a mobile app uh, and you don't want to give over that work product to the company. And so you make really clear that's the case, but it's going to be incorporated into what you build in some capacity. And so essentially what you're doing is you're giving them a limited, non it should be non-exclusive, because again, you want to be able to use it with other people, license to just use this thing. Um, and so that allows the, the company, the client, uh, to get the benefit of the bargain under the contract, but it allows you to, to also retain ownership of the things that you're going to be able to need uh, to use with other clients. And I said that was my last point. I have one more point on this, and it's a, it's a zoom out point. And the zoom out point that I think should inform your decision making whenever you're presented with any of these issues, is ask yourself whether the IP that you have that you're concerned about is IP or inventions or whatever that you need to reuse with other clients. And this is particularly relevant for freelancers. If you have an ongoing business and you have more than one client, 
do you have anything that you need to reuse or that you think that you'll need to reuse? And if the answer is yes, you should not be assigning any of that to any client ever, unless they make you some, you know, knock your knock your socks off kind of financial offer. Uh, you need to that needs to be licensed. You need to retain ownership of, the, of those rights. And and the flip side of that is if there is something that that you're only going you, you're not going to need to reuse, it's usually going to be okay to assign. I want to dive deeper into this background technology. And so, full disclosure. Mark, you've helped me with some things with my business over the years. And so we had an exact issue like this. And so as we were preparing for this episode, I actually went back to an old contract that you had redlined and sent me and uh, using referring to background technology. And basically, the I was working with a venture-backed startup. So they had lots of like legal resources. So even though the company was small, the, obviously their investors were diligent about making sure that they sort of had the intellectual property side of things figured out. So in a sense, like, you know, company size doesn't always necessarily indicate what their legal interests might be, right? Versus somebody who's working out of the garage. And so it was a pretty big contract that they had sent over and it included this background technology clause. And it basically, like, as you were just saying, the gist of it is that they wanted to, and I'll read the language here specifically, Contractor unconditionally grants to the company a non-exclusive, perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide, fully paid right and license with the right to sublicense, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, contractors, intellectual property rights in any background technology. Now, the thing that we struck out here was that they had had a line that said anything necessary for the company to fully utilize and capitalize the work product. So, you know, the general section made sense, but this like term of fully utilizing and capitalizing on the product, it just sort of was such an open-ended thing that we didn't feel comfortable necessarily with leaving that in. We redlined it, we sent it back to them and it was fine. They didn't balk at that. They didn't mind whatsoever. And so I think with background technology and this IP technology, you know, just my like direct experiences that they're going to swing for the fences. They're going to try to include everything and that there's small things you can push back on that they're probably not going to care about. And, you know, now what's happening is that I'm building out intro CRM, which is an extension really of the sales consulting work that I do. And I'm really glad that, you know, there's no thread between that project that I had done and the software product that I'm building now. I think it would there's not really any way that they could connect the two but i do have sort of a shared set of questions that i ask between different projects and so you know your counsel to me in that case was was really helpful and so yeah my second point is that you don't know what you might want to do with your things in the future you might think that you just have like a one page google doc but maybe you're actually going to end up writing a book about what you do and that that one pager is going to be a very important part of this, you know, information product that you're going to publish in the future. So, you know, A, know that you can push back, that they're going to swing for the fences, but B, you don't know what you might want for your things in the future. And so if you're starting something, don't just assume that something you have, oh, it's just this little thing I put together. It's not a big deal. It's just a single graphic or it's just a single spreadsheet because your business could evolve in ways that you don't expect. Um, so Mark, Mark, I'm curious what you think about that. This isn't really a question, I guess, more of a comment, <laughs> but, uh, what do you think? And, and has that consistent with your experience or your perspective? I think it's a, I think both points are important. Um, I'll start with the second one. In many ways, the greater success that you have with your side projects, the more incentive 
that whatever client or former employer will have to to pursue whatever broad ownership rights they have under a previous contract that they had with you. So Harris, I think your point is an important one for people to remember that while you may be getting amped about all the success you're having building, you know, a, a product like like Intro CRM or whatever other side thing that you have, in many ways you're centering this target on your back uh, with with every additional success that you have, um, and especially as as money starts coming into the bank, um, it can create real problems for you. And so I do think you need to you need to go into these things with the understanding. Um, you know, to, to echo some of what you said, that um, future success, while not guaranteed, uh, may happen. And you should assume it's going to happen uh, because that's going to have an impact on, uh, on, on how these contract negotiations are conducted and, and how you see those sorts of things. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I tell this to people all the time. And so I'm, I'm actually glad that you did raise it. Um, that if you do have this side project, you should assume it's going to blow up. You should assume that all of your uh, you know, greatest fantasies for the business of the side hustle are going to come to pass. Uh, as far as the first point that you raised, um, which now I'm, I'm blanking on it. Can you remind me what it was? I know there were two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, basically just that they'll throw everything in here, oh, throw yeah. everything into contracts and that sometimes they don't even, it doesn't seem like they even necessarily care if you redline it. And so like, what's the deal with that? Yeah, hundred percent. So their lawyers writing it. And lawyers work from, from templates, as most people understand. And you can find templates out there. A lot of the programs that, uh, that have templates for lawyers uh, will actually specify, like, say, again, returning to the, the mobile app development example I mentioned, like you might be able to find a mobile app development agreement template. Uh, but you could probably actually find two, and one of them uh, would be denominated as uh, customer, pro-customer. And the other would be denominated as pro developer, right? Which one is the is the customer going to use, right? Which 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 one is the lawyer going to pick? Of course, the pro customer if if the lawyer is representing the customer. And so you get this thing into your inbox, and your assumption because you you know operate in in good faith is that okay, you know the company has taken this careful uh, undertaken this careful analysis, weighing all of the you know benefits and, and drawbacks for each party in this commercial relationship and is settled on this kind of pristine contract. And it's just not true. You know, their lawyer is like, I want the best outcome and the most protection for this company. So I just, you know, plucked this template out, made some tweaks as needed and set it over. And so, you know, closed mouths don't get fed is the old adage. And I think that, you know, it's nowhere is it more true than than in contracting. And just because you're a freelancer, doesn't mean that if you ask for what you want, um, that you won't get it. So I do encourage people to be bold um, and, and to try to represent their, their interests as, as much as they can. If they need the, the help of a lawyer to do that, that's great. You know, pursue that. But you can actually get some good outcomes, too, even if it's just you asking for what you want. Yeah, that makes total sense. So can you help me understand what we're talking about background technology versus prior inventions? What's the difference between those clauses and what do they imply? There's a, typically there's not much of a difference to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think it's primarily a difference in nomenclature, um, and you'll also see like the phrase pre-existing materials is another example of that. Usually, what it implies is it's something that you've done prior to the effective date of that contract, and the parties are trying to figure out uh, you know relative rights and responsibilities for that background technology 
pre-existing inventions. I will say mm -hmm. that um, to the extent that there is a difference between those, um, background technology is typically going to be indicative of you know, the scenario I mentioned where something may be incorporated into a, a deliverable or a piece of work product uh, that you previously created, right? Uh, and so you need to grant that limited license. Again, like the example Harris used to, the, the one that we worked on together, where there is this language that says, if any of this is incorporated into the, the work product, you grant us this limited use license to, um, you know, to achieve the intended benefit of the contract. Whereas sometimes with the prior inventions clause, it's just literally you saying, hands off, this is my stuff. You can't touch it. You don't own it. It's all owned by me. Even then, though, you're probably going to see some language in there that says, but if anything is incorporated, it's going to be subject to this license. Again, because companies are so concerned about being able to satisfy their, their obligations to their own commercial partners and, and clients. Sure. And that makes total sense if, if, if you want to list out the things that are like, these are important inventions. Um, and I, you know, if I'm going to use them in my work product for the company, then here's a, here's a limited license on you using those. Anything that says like, you know, unrestricted, unpaid license, blah, 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 I should be concerned with. Um, that's like a red flag to me. Um, and then like, I, sometimes I run across this where the, and the idea of the invention is kind of broad. What should I be listing? Is it really only things I have patents for or in the process of, or is it like, oh, Hey, we have this, this podcast called hello blink show and you know it's open source but like i should list something like that because in that mm -hmm. case like i have so many open source projects it's like oh here's a link to my github page like yeah this is all licensed according to what you read in the license for each one like what should i be concerned with what should i be considering listing here so sean i, I actually think you're a good example and, and both of you are probably good examples of someone who should resist uh, the framing of list of enumerating prior inventions, trying to look okay, at that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I was just like, oh my god, I've done so many things that are just like all across the internet, whether it's open source or just like, oh god, I can't list all of this. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you should resist that. There could be limited circumstances where it's pretty clear what uh, you know what the scope of work is for that particular client. And the only thing that you're really concerned with is, say, like one patent that you have or, you know, discrete project that you've worked on in the past that relates to their business. So, I mean, you can use some common sense there, too. But sometimes in contracting, common sense is a poor substitute for for ex explicit language. Um, and, and so I think for someone like you who has this whole body of work for both of you. Right. And it, it, it's varied. It takes different shapes and forms. Um, if you get a contract that says list out all of your prior inventions, especially if it's a, a, a you know freelance independent contractor agreement in some form, you might want to push back and say that's not commercially realistic for me to do. It would take way too much time, and there's too high a risk that I would overlook something. And so we need to instead insert some more general clause along the lines of you know anything that pre-exists the contract or that is unrelated to the contract, something that's more general like that. Yeah, and I, I'm still worried about like something you said early, earlier where you said, oh, hey, if it's outside of the scope of work, you can't lay claim to it. It's like, okay, I might've written a library like you said that I'm going to include in here. And, and how would I make sure that like, you know, do I list that library that I wrote that you know has a different license. I still own the intellectual property to it. Maybe it's on GitHub, whatever. And I'm going to include that or a part of a project or maybe teach it in a class or something that's like, oh, I did this previously. 
but I don't want the company to have ownership of it, but I plan to use this like in that, like how do you structure that without listing all of your prior inventions? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why the, the more general, you know, zooming back out and saying anything prior or unrelated to, but then grant them that limited use license for, for anything that, that they don't actually own. I think the example you gave is a classic example of the benefit of, of that approach because you're ensuring that they can use their thing without limiting your ability to then teach it in a class, incorporate it into another deliverable for, for a different client. Yeah, that makes total sense. Harris, any other questions? Yep. Yeah, so just real quick, we talk about seek counsel, talk to an attorney. Obviously, people can go to you, Mark Tyson. I'm sure you'd be more than happy to help them. If they have a, an attorney at work who offers, hey, I can talk you through this. I can explain how it works, contextualize things. What should people be careful of there? I mean, surely there's some incentives, right? I mean, you've talked about this a little bit already, but we want to be careful who we get the advice from. I mean, I, I guess, why don't we talk through this, like this, the, the process of talking to someone who can help with this, talking to a, a corporate attorney versus, you know, listening to a podcast versus like, how do you go and find someone who can maybe help you navigate this? How should people approach that? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, if, if the company that, that you're planning to work for or be employed by has an in-house legal team or in-house counsel, they may say, hey, you know, here's the contract. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, and it might make sense for you to, to ask questions in that context, but definitely keep in mind they don't represent you. Um, they don't represent your personal interests. They should tell you that. They may not, but they should. Um, ultimately, they have ethical, you know, responsibilities not to, to mislead you or lie to you. But, um, you know, lawyers have a bad reputation for a reason. Um, and, and, you know, and there's gray area, right? So I guess what I would say is be, be circumspect when dealing with company counsel. Understand uh, where, where their loyalties and where their duty ultimately lie. Um, if you are going to go seek help from an attorney, uh, this is actually an area, interestingly, where, uh, you know, you may have friends who work at big law firms in town uh, and you may think, oh, I can just go talk to them. You know, they're a buddy. They're probably going to turn you away. And it's not because they don't like you and don't want to help you. It's because their big law firm wants to avoid conflicts of interest with industry clients. So they're going to say no to you and they're going to say it reluctantly. But it's going to be a reality for you. So this is actually an area where you can really clearly say, if I'm going to find help from, from a professional, it's going to be from someone who works at a smaller firm or as a solo practitioner like me. Um, so I actually end up, end up advising a lot of clients on this. I also advise lots of businesses on the other side of this, which makes it fun to, to see both sides of, of this picture. Um, but yeah, if you, if you are interested in this, don't call your friends who work at the, you know, um, you know, top 100 size law firm, international law firm, because they're going to turn you down. They're going to turn you away. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I, I think when it comes to approaching your company's lawyer, um, keeping in mind their loyalties is important. It, it might be a, a, a decent conversation to have with them. It's like, hey, I'm working on a side hustle um, and I want to know where these boundaries are with this employee contract that I signed with my employer. Um, they might be able to walk you through that and say, hey, these are the things you want to steer clear of or nope, we own everything because you signed it, sucker. Um so I, I think it, that's maybe worthwhile having the conversation, but trying to use them to be like, oh, help me with this side hustle. They're not going to help you. They, you know, they're com the company they work for is going to be in their best interest or their, who they're loyal to. Um, 
So where can we get into negotiations with these? Can we negotiate these contracts? And you mentioned this earlier, like if you're signing up to be an employee somewhere and, you know, they want to they want you to sign this thing that has complete ownership of everything. They're not in a state that has, you know, these statutes that say you can't claim ownership. Um, understanding that. And like you said, you can push back and say, hey, I need some more pay to make up for this. You know, I can't work on my side hustle any longer, so I need some more pay. So you can use that as leverage. So that's a good negotiation. But what about when it comes as a contractor, like for me or Harris or somebody else who's I'm getting into freelancing um, or consulting and I sign up with a client and this usually is what happens to me, right? I, I about to close the deal. We agree on a price. Um, my client goes, great. We've got this template form. We just need to sign it to you. And they send it over and it's got all these clauses and you're like, what are you guys doing? You want me to sign what? Um, how do I negotiate this? What do I go about? Do I, do I like, cause there's one option. You just say like, yeah, I'm not signing this. And maybe that's viable. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, but maybe not, maybe it's your first client and you're like, I, I, I need the work. What can I do to negotiate this? I ask questions. Um, that can be a really useful and, and surprisingly simple way of approaching this. In, in contract negotiation, there's an understanding, at least among people who are operating in good faith, that if there's something in the contract, there's a reason for it. And the reason is has to be justified in some way, right? Uh, if you ask a question about a provision and the company can't give you a good explanation for why it's in there, that's a really easy way for you to respond and say, okay, so can we take that out? Mm. And if they say no, you get to say, well, why? And if, if, again, if they can't justify it, I mean, it, it sends you two signals at the very least. The first being, um, you know, that the company may be a little bit shady. And the second being that you may be putting yourself at risk. If you sign the contract, regardless of what, regardless of whether they ultimately end up taking out that provision, um, not every client is is created equally, and you should be really cautious about saying yes to people who are unwilling or unable to justify the the demands that they're they're putting upon you. The other thing, Sean, I would say, if you've had repeated issues with um, negotiating, say, price and, and some of the other key commercial terms with clients, and then you get a contract and it's just, um, it's, it's completely out of line with what you're willing to sign. You might consider, before you get too far in the process, asking them to send over like a sample agreement that mm. they would likely use, with the understanding being that price is not actually the only term that, that freelancers particularly care about. Um, there are other things that can really impact the benefit of the bargain. And until you know those things, agreeing on price doesn't do much of anything, honestly. And so maybe early on in the process, say, hey, I'm really interested. It seems like a good fit. Uh, you know, obviously, there are some terms that we need to negotiate. Um, why don't you send over you know, the, the standard form contract that we would use? What that does, in addition to what I just mentioned, is also sends a signal to the company that you're not just, they can't just plug this PDF into DocuSign and send it to you and have you rubber stamp it and move along because that's their approach. They want to make it as easy and, and almost, um, they want to create pressure on you to just click and sign. Uh, but it turns out that's not, <laughs> most people will negotiate with you. And so if you upfront make it clear to them that you're not just going to say yes and not just say, thank you so much for giving me this work, you're instead going to be you know hyper aware of, of what's important to you for your business, you're actually sending a signal to the company that you're mature, 
uh, a mature service provider, a mature um, operator from a business standpoint, and they need to, to be reasonable in how they interact with you. Yeah. And I think you bring up a, you know, there's a point here you're making that we, we're assuming read your damn contract, right? If you don't understand it, it's, I would say it's very important you get legal help to walk you through, um, you know, spending a, you know, $100, $200 for an hour of an attorney's time or more when you're talking about, you know, thousands of dollars in your, in your, you know, potential pay, you got to compare the risk factor of like, this contract might be screwing me in the future, right? I may make something on the side while working on multiple contracts that makes me a million dollars. Like you said, you have to assume this is going to happen. And you sign something that says, oh, by the way, that company you contracted with, they own that. So it is so important you walk through this um, and make sure you understand the terms of what's going on here. I think that's that's an assumption we're making here. But if you don't do it. Yeah, Sean, one thing I'd add to that, too, is is I think the risk calculus is, is actually even different than than how some people think about it, which is kind of the simplistic version is the value of the contract, let's say, is five thousand dollars. And so you say, okay, well, maybe I'm going to spend three or 400 bucks or 500 bucks hiring an attorney to look at this and, and talk with me about it. And you say, well, it seems like kind of a big percentage of the contract, but I don't know, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. And some people just say, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth enough. Uh, but I think that that's a, a myopic view of, of, of the risk analysis. I think you also have to, to forecast into the future and say, what's the value of all the future contracts that I could get? by virtue of retaining ownership to this IP. And if you view it through that lens, you start to understand that service providers like legal and accounting, they're not just some you know, cost center, although they can be. Um, you, know, it's, you have to have a longer term view of this if you're planning to do this for the long term. And so that $500 may end up being a very, very tight, you know, sliver of a percentage of the value of these future contracts that you have that you're, it, you're able to enter into because you have this IP portfolio that you've built up and that you've protected. Yeah, and you also learn too, right? The, the very first time it's going to seem like a big blow to spend $500 on a lawyer, sit with you for a few hours, but you're also learning, right? And then you're like, you understand what the red flags look like in future contracts. And, you know, at some point, if you make it big enough, maybe you're the one with the contract that says, no, this is what I'm willing to do. And you send that to your clients. At some point, up until then, it's a negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are plenty of, of commercial contexts that I see where where the service provider is sending over the, the template because they're in, in such high demand. And there's an understanding that in many ways you are paying for this background technology, but you're not paying for it in, in an ownership capacity. You're paying for their experience and, and what they've built up and what they're able to, to deliver to you. But yeah, you may be able to, to dictate how the um, how the IP ownership is structured. Um, once you've achieved a certain level of success and depending on how, kind of which industry you're in and, and how you're positioned. Harris, anything else? You're good? Yeah, this has been great. I mean, it's it, it's the kind of thing where I feel like most of the time people will talk about this, it's too late. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that another type of situation I've seen is where, uh, you know, you're working at a place that gets slowly more sophisticated and then you maybe one day you see a document roll across your desk that says, hey, moving forward, we need all our employees to sign this contract regarding invention and things like that. So I think it's good to be aware of this, even if you're not currently actively negotiating a contract for your business or a new, you know, employment position. Um, because, you know, I've seen that come around too, where sort of eventually 
someone listens to a lawyer like Mark and realizes, oops, we've been sort of flying blind for the last three years. We've got tons of exposure and liability regarding everything our engineers have been doing for the last three years. We need to get everyone to sign this new document ASAP. (laughs) And they've got HR kind of working on it urgently. So, you know, there's a lot of different situations in which this can come up. Yeah, I would I would add to that, Harris. I think you actually raise a good point, which is it does often happen too for young companies, like you mentioned, that they won't have this at the outset, but in two or three years, um, they'll come to you and say, hey, please sign this. Keep in mind that uh, just because a company asks you, especially if you're an employee, to sign a, a you know, new contract, uh, doesn't mean it's enforceable unless they take steps to, to ensure its enforceability. And oftentimes what that means is they need to provide it's called additional independent consideration um, to support this new contract, essentially changing the terms of, of your employment. Um, and so like in, in other settings where I often see this is with restrictive covenants, like, like non-compete agreements um, or non-solicitation. And so the company will come and say, hey, we're having everyone sign this. Can you please sign it? But they don't give you a raise. They don't give you a bonus. They don't give you a promotion. They don't give you any, any kind of tangible independent benefit. They just say, hey, just sign this thing. That may not actually be enforceable against you, uh, but the company will assume it is, which could lead to battles down the road. So what I would say to people is if they do have the company approach them and say, hey, please sign this, but they're not being offered anything on top of it, push back and say, hey, you're changing the terms of the deal. And so if that's going to happen, what are you giving me? Why should I sign this, right? And of course, be tactful about it because it's a it's a business, and you know they might take it personally if you're nasty about it. But it's a legitimate question, and the company may actually be putting itself in a bad position by not um, by not providing consideration. So so don't just kind of roll over if if the company says, hey, we're everyone signing these things. Yeah, this is great advice. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show and helping out with this. I hope this helps out any listeners that might be dealing with their own contracts, whether as an employee or as a contractor, freelancer, consultant. Thanks a lot, guys. Really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC by 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.